Boy, worshiping King Jesus sure is sweet, isn't it? Love that. Thank you, Pastor Justin and praise team, choir for leading us. You know where to go, don't you, church? 2 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 6 this morning. And while you're turning there, let me, I wanted to say just it, it, it's such a sweet time at the end of October every year to gather with my wife and read your sweet cards and notes and just think about um, how blessed we are again to be able to shepherd this uh, wonderful family. And so uh, thank you so much uh, for each and every kind word and gift for Pastor Appreciation Month. It's just uh, it's a humbling honor. Uh, to be able to do this. And, and this, um, this is a family, isn't it? Yeah, I don't care if you've been a member here for a month, a year, 10 years, or 50 years. You are family when you come to be a part of Gray Gables. And it is a wonderful family to be a part of indeed. Uh, so thank you guys. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I mentioned uh, this last week. This will be the last um, sermon in 2 Samuel for a bit. We're going to take a bit of a break, uh, and we're going to have the opportunity to hear from from some other men in the church coming up uh, later this month. And I think all three uh, of us, um, me and two other guys, will be in uh, the Gospels. So we'll be able to get some some New Testament scriptures and sermons coming up for the rest of the month of November. And then it'll be Christmas time. And if you've never been a part of Christmas at Gray Gables, this is the most beautiful sanctuary already. But particularly in Christmas time, as Joyce does a wonderful job every year uh, decorating for us. And it, we get in the spirit. And this year, uh, particularly, I'm excited because we'll be doing a three-part series on hymnology which is the study. We'll be taking three Christmas carols and looking at the composition of those carols, the doctrine behind those carols, and see really identifying what we sing just as part of the season every year and how doctrinally rich those carols are rooted in the Word of God. It's a pain. Justin and I talk about this every year, particularly Pastor Justin talks about how much of a pain it is to have so many doctrinally rich songs that you have three weeks to sing in December uh, in worship. And so we're going to actually be able to spend quite a bit of time examining some of our favorite Christmas hymns and carols in December. And then we'll pick up 2 Samuel back in January. So now that you know where we're going, you ready to get to work? This is a labor together in the Word of God to see what He has for us uh, to hear. And so again, verses 1 through 15. And, and Again, one more reminder, this is really a continuation of last week, understanding that God is a holy king. And so, um, let's go ahead and if you are able, stand for the reading of God's word. And we'll dive in together to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was up on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. 
And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So that David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we've been reminded already that it is by virtue of your sovereign kindness and your grace and your mercy toward us that we are even able to gather in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you might be pleased to continue to help us see his majesty, his beauty, and the glory of this, your son. That our faith might be increased, that our hope might be amplified as we're reminded of the mystery of the gospel in your son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us toward that end? We ask in his precious name, amen, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon and last week, this is really a continuation of what we encountered last week. I'm going to really just kind of back up a little bit so we can get a running start to our passage this morning. If you recall the beginning of chapter 5, we said this was the most pivotal time in Old Testament history that David is anointed king over the entire house of Israel. His kingdom is established and exalted by the Lord himself. And so we read in chapter 5, verse 12 there, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And then last week, what we looked at in verses 17 uh, through 25 of chapter 5, is that one of the first things that David does in the flow of this narrative is defeat that consummate enemy, the Philistines. He does so among two different episodes, both depicting something similar. In the first, he inquires of the Lord. The Lord says, yes, I will give them into your hands. And the Lord breaks through them like a flood. It says in chapter 5, verse 20, so David went to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal 
Perizim. And then in the next episode, we have David again inquiring of the Lord. We saw that that's when David's at his best. But this time, the Lord draws near and he enters into the tent of David. And he tells him the strategy demonstrating an intimacy that David and the people of Israel needed to remember. And now moving from this demonstration of the holy kingship of God, we see in chapter 6 that this is really continued, but in a slightly different way. In fact, one of the first things we see as we take up chapter 6 is that the king, capital K, is being brought to the capital of Israel. Or there's at least an attempt to do so anyway. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 2. And David arose again and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So here's the picture of the throne of God as the Lord of hosts sits above the cherubim and he's being brought into the city of David. And of course, things do not go as well as David hoped that they would go, at least not initially. And so really what we do is we take up this text in light of this emphasis upon God as a holy king. Remember that theme from last week? We take up that text with this emphasis. And I want us to consider how this actually presents itself as a problem to first Israel in the context of the event itself, then to Israel as the audience hearing the recording of this event, and then also to us. Really, the fact that God is a holy king is, in fact, a problem. (laughs) Yahweh is a holy king. And so, let's take up the problem first, and then we'll consider the solution. Here is the heart of the problem. We find it in that question that David asked in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 6, where he says, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's the problem. See, the question presents the problem with incredible clarity. This is the second time we've seen this issue arise. We also saw it arise back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6, specifically chapter 6. I just want to point out a couple of parallels between these two passages, 1 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 6, just so you're not confused. Uh, Both are preceded by the Lord defeating the Philistines. In chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, the Lord defeats them. Back in chapter 5, the Lord actually defeats the Philistines, you remember, all by himself. Remember, the ark is carried into the land of the Philistines, and he goes just on a little circa from town to town, defeating Philistines until they are trembling with fear. And they actually ask a similar question to what David asked here. They say, what are we to do with this ark? How can we survive If the ark of God is in our presence, then it's sent back to the Israelites in 1 Samuel. And it's initially met with rejoicing and celebration just like our text. But both passages eventually lead to judgment due to unwarranted proximity to the ark. So back in 1 Samuel 6... It's because men looked into the ark. And I know immediately you're thinking of Raiders of the Lost Ark from Indiana Jones, right? I don't think their face melted like that, but who knows? In 2 Samuel, 
It's because Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark. And again, both ask the same question in 1 Samuel 6, 20. Who is able to stand before this holy God? And to whom shall it go up from us? And so when we read David's question in 2 Samuel 6, verse 9, we're taking up what has already been communicated in 1 Samuel into this passage. Again, what's the problem? The problem is, who is able to stand before the holy king? Right? If the ark of God is a symbol of the presence of God dwelling amongst people, and David asks, how can this presence of God come to me? Really, the problem we have before us this morning is who is able to stand before the holy king? How is this ark, this throne of this holy king, to come into the midst of God's people? I mean, it's a dangerous affair, isn't it? You know what was actually safer than bringing the ark into Jerusalem? Fighting and defeating the Philistines at the end of chapter 5. That was actually safe. This is dangerous. And so this is the problem. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Even David, the protagonist of this story, has stumbled like the ox pulling the cart and failed to bring the ark into the capital. And I want us to meditate on this problem for just a moment by considering it from several different angles. The first thing is this. I want you to notice that this is a personal problem. This is a personal problem. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, uh, the original audience was reminded through this passage that their struggle was preeminently personal. This ark is not simply just like a tally man that brings Israel good luck. It's not some idol that Israel carved out of wood. That's how the ark was treated, by the way, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Do you remember initially the Philistines and the Israelites, they go out to battle. The Philistines actually win the battle and 4,000 Israelites are struck down. So the Israelites say, why in the world is the Lord handing us over to the Philistines? That's a great question. Maybe they should have searched their own heart and repented of their sin. Maybe they should have, like David, inquired of the Lord. But it just stops right there. They just ask that question. Then they say, you know what the problem is? The Lord's not close enough to help us. What what the Lord needs is a little help from us to be closer. He's lost the signal. The service is bad there. He's too far away. There's bad reception. So here's what we'll do. We'll bring him into our midst by the hand of Eli's wicked sons who are already under God's judgment. The end result is that 30,000 more Israelites perish in that event. See, my point is, is that the ark, the very presence of God is manipulated. The relationship between Israel and the ark is seen as the relationship between Israel and a personal God. But Israel is treating it like an object that one must manipulate in order to bring about the results they desire. They didn't speak to the God enthroned upon the ark They simply brought it into the camp. But the ark, hear me, the ark itself is nothing. It is God who caused his name to dwell there. 
That's the significance. It's not the box itself. And so in 2 Samuel 6, the author emphasizes that the ark is important because of its focus on God's presence. Notice at the very outset of our passage, the very beginning, he says, bring up from there the ark of God. What does he say in verse 2? Whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. It's called by his name, which, which means that the ark is his venue. It's where God's divine presence abides. And it's worth noting that when we think back in the book of Exodus, the significance of the ark is seen by its order in the construction process. It's the ark that's constructed first, then the tabernacle after that. In fact, the ark is the only thing in that, you know the second half of Exodus where it's just like a a, a blueprint, right? The ark is the only thing in Exodus that is constructed or contracted by one person. Bazael, whom the Lord empowered with his spirit. And finally, its placement in the tabernacle itself. That's sufficient to remind us and reveal its preeminence among all other items. Where was it placed? Do you know? In the Holy of Holies. It was. It alone was separated from Israel in the most inner part of their tabernacle. Only one man, once a year, was allowed to enter into the direct presence with the ark. And only then, for just a moment, lest the wrath of God break out against the whole nation of Israel. This God, who dwells above the ark, is not some local deity. He is the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. This ark is the throne of the king of glory. Notice again that the ark's not called by just some general name. It's called by the covenant name of God. The personal name given to Israel. And this event is recorded in part to remind Israel and us something we've seen all throughout this book. And that is that our problem, friends, is personal. It was communicated to remind Israel that they are, were in a personal relationship with a holy God. See, I I imagine most of us would just say, check, got that, Pastor Cody, you can move on now. But the problem is, it's really difficult to appreciate what I just told you. That Israel was in a personal relationship with a holy God. There is a tension there that has to be appreciated to understand the whole redemptive story. See, when we say that God is holy, we are saying that he is set apart. And there are really two ways we talk about God's holiness. We can talk about God's holiness ontologically, which is a big word, just meaning that he is the only uncreated, self-sufficient, immutable, eternal being. Right? There is no other like him. There is God, and then there is everything else that which he created. He transcends every creaturely category. He is also, though, morally holy. That is, all that he does is perfectly just and righteous. By his very nature, he is the definition of justice. And so as we try to grasp and grapple with that in the very same breath, we must understand that the same God who is ontologically and morally holy is personal. 
Meaning that he is close. He's near. He's a God who stoops low, who condescends to reveal himself to his creatures, who enters into a covenant relationship with them, who binds himself not out of necessity, but out of his sovereign freedom to his creatures. So hear me, this holy, this transcendent God is also imminent and personal. He draws near so we might know him. And it is incredible how central that whole idea is to knowing God. In fact, Jesus in the high priestly prayer says in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So so what's the point in all this? What takes place here? It doesn't simply transgress some sort of code that was written to the fabric of reality and it just throws it off kilter. Uzzah touching the ark isn't transgressing some natural law. What happens to Uzzah, and I'm not making this up, I really, really read this this week, was not the result of static electricity. Uzzah wasn't electrocuted because of how the ark was carried. Somebody actually probably got paid some money to write that in a commentary. I was dumbfounded this week. This was a personal offense in relationship that brought about the consequence or punishment that Uzzah endured. In fact, I want to say one more thing about Uzzah's death here uh, and then we'll move on. I I once heard a preacher say this and I'm, I'm really in complete agreement. That as we read accounts like this in the historical narrative, we must keep in mind that there are things worse than death. See, see, Uzzah's death here does not necessarily translate to his eternal punishment. Uzzah dies, as many others do, in judgment scenarios in the Old Testament. It's not always ultimately a depiction of their eternal state. See, there is something far worse than temporal death here. That is eternal separation, a complete darkening of the mind, a complete unknowing of God. That is real suffering eternally and forever. But in this instance, Uzzah specifically, uh, not just him, but, but Israel as a whole, when they transgress a law, hear me, it's just not some statute that's written out there someplace, somewhere. When they transgress a law, they're offending a personal God. They're disrupting, degrading, and breaking a personal relationship. See, what happened to Israel here, and more specifically, what happened to Uzzah, was the result of a personal relational problem of incredible magnitude. The problem was sinfulness compounded by ignorance. See, it... It's tempting to point out the obvious and say, well, the reason this story happened was sin. Obviously, there's some sin here, right? The Lord doesn't just randomly strike down people. But it's sin compounded by ignorance. Israel's problem is, and always has been, that they really don't know their Lord, So so here's David and Israel, they're they're putting the ark of God on a new cart. This is only done, by the way, focus on this. Did you notice that? They put it on the ark, or they put it on a new cart. This This is only done one other time in all of Scripture.
You want to take a stab at where that is? Back in 1 Samuel 5, when the Philistines are trying to figure out what do we do with the ark. Their priests tell them, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to send a reparation, a sacrifice, an offering with this. You've sinned against the Lord. The Philistine priest says that. Have you heard of what he did, what he did to Egypt? Don't harden your heart like they did. There's no reason for you to perish. They obviously know the Lord. I mean, it's crazy, right? This is the testimony of the Philistines. So they say, let's put it on a new cart and here's what we'll do. We'll tie two milk cows to it. The milk cows would obviously be prone to go back to their calves. And they say, if the ark goes back to Israel, we'll know that this was the hand of the Lord. If not, if the cows go back to their calves as we expect, then this is obviously not the hand of the Lord. Of course, it was the hand of the Lord and the cart returns to Israel. The ark's received by Israel. Now hear this. Now, that's the last time we hear about the, cart, the ark being put on a cart. Until now. Where did David and Israel get this idea on how to move the ark? God never said, put my ark on a new cart. In fact, God gave very clear instructions on how to move the cart. We all know it as the part in our Bible reading plan we like to skip over. But it's true. He gave very clear instructions to them on how... To move the ark. He never said put it on a new cart. What did God say? He set aside a specific clan. The tribe of the Levites. To carry the ark. He had actually the ark. Constructed in such a way. That there were rings with poles. That were never to be moved. Why were the poles never to be removed? So that no one ever had to touch the ark. You grab the poles, you don't touch the ark, and you don't put the ark on a new cart. And here they are, putting it on a new cart. Then they're celebrating and rejoicing as they bring the ark in this disobedient fashion, completely ignoring the word of God. Do you see the inconsistency there? Do you see the problem? Why would they do such a thing? Because they obviously don't know their Lord, nor do they know his law. This is what I imagine, by the way. David's like, you know, we're going to bring the ark into the city of David. This is where the ark needs to be. This is the capital. And someone says, "Uh, David, um, us Levites, we, we haven't really carried that ark in a long time. I'm not exercising like I should be. We've gotten a little bit weak and lazy, and I'm looking at them. They're not any better. Uh, They're not going to make it. Uh, you know what we should do? Here's what we should do. Let's, let's put the ark on a new cart. We'll have some oxen carry it. You know what? It worked for the Philistines. Let's do that. Friends, hear me. Is, is it ever okay for us as the church to take our cues from the Philistines? Listen, I'm going to go off track here a little bit. But, but isn't that what the church does often? We say, you know what really draws people? This business over here is really successful. If, if, you get, if you get raffles up in here for free TVs on Sunday morning, you can get a crazy amount of people in this building. We'll pack these seats in no time. Let's have ourselves some raffles. You know what else people really like? I was at a Philistine concert the other night, and these guys were just jamming out. If we get more rock and roll up in here with some professional-grade music and lights and smokes, people love that stuff. We're going to draw them in, and you know what? We're going to do it in the name of the gospel. It's all for him. 
Are you kidding me? (laughs) There's an inconsistency there. Listen, it doesn't matter how loud you sing, how much you dance, or how hard you play your instruments. If you're walking contrary to the word of the Lord, it's not worship. We have only one cue, and it is the word of the Lord. If we diverge from that, we do so to our own peril. i got to continue here. The problem's not just personal. It's not a personal problem. It is a universal problem. What do I mean by that? It's a universal problem. Well, what I mean by that is, is we see this all throughout the Old Testament. Israel is, in one sense, really just a microcosm of humanity. What I mean is Israel, as a new Adam, represents humanity as a whole. Israel's ignorance of their Lord is humanity's ignorance put under a microscope. That's how this functions. So Adam's exile was an exile from knowing God as we ought Also, in the end, Israel will be exiled, and the problem is not physical separation, but spiritual estrangement. Mankind no longer knows God rightly. We have a distorted view of God. We take that, and we turn it into our idol that we worship. We worship a God of our own minds that we create. And so hear me, we've got a distorted view. The ignorance demonstrated by Israel here, it's universal. This is not just an Israelite problem, it's a human problem. But, it, but it's also really profound. They fought against the Philistines and David recognizes that the Lord has broken through like a flood. And then we read just a little bit further down that the Lord is breaking out, the verb says, against Uzzah. It's actually the same verb, side by side, one chapter away. The same Lord that broke through the Philistines is breaking out against the Israelites. Meaning that Israel isn't safe because there is a holy God in the midst of a sinful people. This sin problem hasn't ultimately and finally been dealt with yet. In fact, we go back to Exodus 19. Remember, the Lord brings Israel out of Egypt and to himself, and then he gives them this warning. This is just remarkable to me as I studied this week in Exodus 19 through 21. The Lord's the one that brings him out of Israel to himself. And then look what he says in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. So, so here he is. He brought them there, and then he warns them, Don't come any closer. I'm sorry, I can't actually dwell right next to you. There's got to be some type of separation. Why? Because if there isn't, I'll break out and destroy you. Does that seem harsh? If that seems harsh, then you really don't know the holiness of the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. You don't understand that you're dealing with a holy king, or in C.S. Lewis's words, he is not a tamed lion. He's not the nice little grandpa who sits up in heaven with a long beard, just wants you to climb up into his lap however and whenever you please. No. He says, if they come into my presence, they'll perish. Is that the God you know? See, listen, this is the starting point. Before we get to the mystery of the gospel, we've got to understand this. We've got to come to the foot of Mount Sinai, see the smoke, hear the thunder, see the mountain shake, and be terrified. There's no way into his presence. 
That's why, by the way, that question, that problem keeps coming up over and over again in the course of Samuel. What shall we do? How shall we stand before this holy God? See, y'all already know I'm about to get to Jesus, right? <laughs> like you hear that and you know, you're, are you longing for it? Long for it because we're getting there. Moses goes on in, in Exodus 19. Look what he says after he warns them, don't come any closer. It says, but Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds around the mountains and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away. Get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come upon the Lord, lest he break out against them. Of course, the end result is one chapter later in verse 18. In Exodus 20, 18 through 19, it says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Friends, I fear too often we present a God, generally speaking, in our conversations with people who is not just, who does not disdain iniquity and evil. We unknowingly, unconsciously, unintentionally paint him as a husband who has an adulterous wife but is really just not all that concerned about the adultery. That's not who God is. He is a jealous God. He's an all-consuming fire. So listen, this is a problem. Israel's been brought into this covenant relationship with the Lord, but they've not really changed as it states in Deuteronomy, the Lord himself says, you must circumcise your hearts. And yet, they continue to be a stiff-necked people and their hearts are hardened toward their Lord. So this is, a, this is a universal problem. It's a personal problem, a universal problem. It's profound. But it's also, listen, it's a perpetual problem. It is. It's a perpetual problem. What does that mean? It means this is going to get worse, not better over time. In fact, it's worth noting that at the significant turns in redemptive history, we see an event just like this right here. For instance, after God actually fills his tabernacle with his presence at Mount Sinai, you know what happens? If you're at Wednesday night, you do Nadab and Abihu perish because they enter with strange fire. Very similar event. At another critical turn in redemptive history, when the people of Israel, they come into the promised land receiving what God has promised through the leadership of Joshua. What do we have? Achan taking what belongs to the Lord and perishing. Here, immediately after the establishment of the kingdom in 2 Samuel 5, we have this warning again. Do not misunderstand the Lord's kindness and diminish his holiness. And I'm sure we're all saying at this point, well, I'm so glad that that's over. That all happened in the Old Testament, right? So glad. The Lord Jesus came and now we don't have these type of events. Except we do. Acts chapter 5. After the first two sermons post-Pentecost are preached and many come to the Lord. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Same thing. Critical points in redemptive history. The pouring out of the Spirit. And what do we have? The same lesson. In each of these places, here is what's fascinating. They are always coupled with the defeat of God's enemies. 
Isn't that interesting? You know what that means? It means, and hear me, I think I've said this every week. The external enemies here are not your concern. It's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem, again, is... Do you know? You. It's, it's me. It's us. We are our greatest problem. For instance, Acts 5. Listen, it's after the Sanhedrin have twice told the apostles, stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. They flogged them, and while they left rejoicing, it's followed by this Acts 5 narrative of Ananias and Sapphira. You know what's the biggest threat to God's people? It's not the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. It's they're not knowing him. They're failing to know that he is a holy king, that he will be honored, glorified, and worshipped. And so it is a perpetual problem. It gets worse, not better over time. How can anyone draw near to God? Or how can God draw near to us? How is this tension that we find in the entirety of the Old Testament going to be resolved? Well, that brings us to the solution. And you know what? We actually see the solution here in our text in verses 12 through 15. David asked the question, how will we stand in the presence of the Lord? And then here's the answer. Someone must have whispered in his ear. Or he thought, you know, we, we do have the word of God written down somewhere. <laughs> Where do we keep that, by the way? Maybe I can scare up a Levite around this place. Oh, Obed-Edom. He's alive. You want to know what clan Obed-Edom's from? Tribe of the Levites. If you want to read a good parallel passage that fills in the gaps with a slightly different angle, take up 1 Chronicles chapter 13 through 15. In fact, I'm not going to allow you to take that up. I'm just going to read it for you in case you forget. This is what David acknowledges in 1 Chronicles 15. He says, this is the same story, he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers, houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourself, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it in the first first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not consult him about the proper order. I love that. David acknowledges, here's the problem. Oh, I know what it is. We didn't seek him according to his word. We just went about it according to what we thought was best. That's a big, big problem. And so he returns, and here we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fattened sheep. He offered a burnt offering. See, we find two things here in the solution that are absolutely essential. The first thing is we find obedience. Obedience is the first thing we find here. David returns to the word and he obeys it. How is the ark to come to me? He asks. There's only one way. God's way. (laughs) That's it. He acknowledges that. He says the Lord has actually communicated to us how the ark is to come. And we're going to obey him. But there's another one. Second is not just obedience but sacrifice. Obedience and sacrifice. Hear this. Six paces are taken. Then a sacrifice is made. What if they'd taken seven without the sacrifice? Well, I don't know. But it, but it seems clear 
that the sacrifice itself is an integral, fundamental, necessary component in the bringing up of the ark. And what's the sacrifice for? It's for atonement. How is God going to dwell among a sinful people? Their sins must be atoned for. There needs to be obedience and atonement. So, can I just quickly put these together? Here you have a passage that clearly depicts the depth of our problem. There is no way that you and I can stand before a holy God. No way. There's no way. It's an impossibility. So from Genesis chapter 3 onward, there must be another way. And every time man tries to come up with his own way, he perishes. So the Lord has to make a way. And of course, he does. What does the Lord do? He steps down off the cherubim and enfleshes himself, taking on the frailty of our human nature in order to obey and actually offer the sacrifice that we may draw near to God. That which this points to was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He stepped down in the fullness of time. The very one who was seated upon the cherubim took on our lowly estate. He humbled himself that he might fulfill all righteousness, obeying all that his father commanded, even to the point of offering his own life, shedding his own blood on our behalf that you and I might be reconciled to God. Isn't this beautiful? It's the entire biblical narrative. You don't have to look hard to see it. And here's the warning. See, you think you're not, but you are constantly tempted to think that you can find your own way. You're constantly tempted to think that somehow you are going to be the one to bridge the gap. It's been done. It's already been done. You just enter into the flesh of Christ, Hebrews chapter 10, or you don't enter at all. That's it. Listen, it's a continuous and ongoing struggle for you really to believe the words that I just preached to you. And I really fear most for those who are sitting in the midst of this sermon right now saying, yeah, absolutely, I believe it every day, all the time. For every single one of us, it's a constant struggle To understand and to know that what Christ did was completely sufficient. That's really good news, isn't it? Here's what you do. Ask yourself this question. How close can we get now? How close can we get to the presence of God? What happened when Christ breathed his last on the cross? You guys know very well. What happened to that veil? Ripped from top to bottom. How close can you and I get now? The God who sat upon the ark, the God who struck down Uzzah because he reached out, and this, listen, this should scare you a little bit. Look to Jesus, it's going to be okay, but, but that's the same God that abides in you. That's remarkable. How close? In one sense, I want to say you can't get any closer, but... The glorious thing is there's actually coming a day where God will dwell with us. That's the nearness we now know because of Christ. I can't explain it any better than that. Maybe, maybe Paul can in Ephesians 2. He says, and hear this, but now in Christ Jesus, 
You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And yet, church family, don't we long for the day where we can be even nearer still. Because once you experience the nearness and the bodily dwelling of Christ in your life, you recognize this is what you were created for. Fellowship with a holy God. And yes, there's fear and trembling there. But oh, for the Christian, there is a desire to be filled with that presence constantly. To long for the day where we have no unhindered fellowship for all of eternity. And that, friends, is our lot because of Jesus. Praise be to God. Let's stand together and close. Gracious Father, listen, you, Lord, you know how easy it is for us to lose sight of who you are. Father, how easy it is for us to take up of some like, subset of, of who you are and, and begin to, to hold on to it like it's the complete fullness of your self-revelation. Father, would you help us to remember that you are a holy God. That your son is our holy king. That his word is our rule. That we, Lord, have but one approach and it is through him. That in him, Father, we have full access into your presence without fear or trembling. Because our consciences have been sprinkled clean by his blood. Would you help us to to worship in spirit and truth as we acknowledge that the God who was once separated by our sin, has now drawn near into our very presence, abiding in us by your Spirit. Would you help us, Lord, to rejoice, to give thanks, and to celebrate all that we have because of Jesus. Father, we ask this because of his very precious name. In the name we pray, amen.